0: Wonderful to be back with you again. Uh, I like this church and I really enjoy your leaders, and that is always a a wonderful thing. If you could open to Revelation chapter 20, uh, when I preached uh, back in March, I would not expect anyone to remember uh, what I covered, but I'll remind you I did a sermon from Colossians chapter 3. And I told you two things uh, to do. Seek the things that are above and set your mind on things that are above. And I encouraged you in that sermon to think often about heaven. Thinking about heaven affects the way we live our lives now. It fills us with love. And we live our life now preparing for that day. Uh, Have two dear friends at Living Hope currently uh, really near the end of their life uh, due to a battle with cancer. And it just reminds me all the more that our days are numbered and our days are unknown. Uh, So we're wise to live carefully now in view of eternity. I told you in that sermon that many, too many, Uh, view heaven as boring, I said that can't be true because God is not boring, and I told you heaven's a real place and Jesus is there. In that sermon, I also told you there are two ultimate destinations, and it's much easier to talk about heaven than it is to talk about the other eternal destination, which most of you would know is hell. And so when Pastor Keith contacted me and invited me back, I take it no one complained from the first time I was here. uh, Inviting me back, I said, uh, what I would love to do, if it serves, uh, would be to do a sermon on hell. Difficult topic to talk about. We, in fact, don't talk about it much. You might hear the word referenced loosely in slang language. We don't seriously talk about this topic often at all. I want to underscore the Bible knows nothing of eternity outside of heaven and hell. There are no other options. We are all, we are each, headed to one or two the other. So hell is a real place. In my study over the decades, there are a handful of books that impacted me. One such book was written back in the 80s, 1989 actually, by a pastor named Randy Alcorn. It's called Money, Possessions, and Eternity. I had a friend that said, uh, if you're going to buy anything, uh, go buy it before you read the book, because the book will shape uh, how you think about money, possessions, and eternity. So here's the quote that affected me back in 1989. A startling thing has happened among Western Christians. Many of us habitually think and act as if there is no eternity or as if what we do in this present life has no bearing on eternity, how many sermons about heaven or hell have most of us heard lately? Well, you can say two at least, uh, and you've no doubt heard more here, but I'm saying uh, at least two. How many gospel booklets even mention the words heaven or hell? Look carefully. You may be surprised. The trend, this is 1989, it's over 30 years ago, The trend is not to focus on our eternal future but our present circumstances. Now, over the past 30 years, that has only increased dramatically. Uh, he, He would have to say this differently today. Yet, Randy says, Scripture states the reality of our eternal future should determine the character of our present life right down to the words we speak and the actions we take. Being oblivious to eternity leaves us experts in the trivial and novices in the significant. We can name that tune, name that starting lineup, name that actor's movie debut, name that country's leading export and detail the differences between computer models or types of four-wheel drives. None of this is wrong, of course, but it's certainly revealing when we consider that most Christians, let alone the general public, do not even have an accurate picture of what the Bible says will happen to us after we die. We major on the momentary, and we minor on the momentous. And then the couple of sermons I'm sharing with you, I've sought to address that issue. I believe one of the primary jobs of a pastor is to prepare his church for eternity. But as you know, we get busy. Things press in upon us, we lose focus, and before you know it, in the hustle and bustle, and in the scramble of life, we may well forget about eternity, but the Bible, and by the Bible, I mean the full counsel of God. I don't mean just our favorite parts and sections, but the full counsel of God won't let us stay there, and so heaven's wonderful to consider, and I must admit, a lot more fun. Hell is difficult, and I suggest even painful, but we must go there. I say it's painful because you may well have friends or family now deceased and you are aware they were not professing faith in Christ. And so we don't wish to speak adamantly about anyone uh, and, and their eternal destination, but, but it can weigh heavily on us. So my title is The Doctrine of Eternal Punishment, Going to read Revelations 20, 11 to 15, and then I'll answer three questions built from this text. Revelation 20, 11 to 15, then I saw a great white horse and him who was seated on it, that's Jesus, from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened he was thrown into the lake of fire. May God bless the preaching of his word. Question one, what is hell? The Bible calls hell a lake of fire as described in our text. A theologian Wayne Grudem gives this definition. Hell is a place of eternal conscious torment for the wicked. Your statement of faith in the ECFA agrees. It's number 10, response and eternal destiny. We believe that God commands everyone everywhere to believe the gospel by turning to him in repentance and receiving the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe that God will raise the dead bodily and judge the world, assigning the unbeliever to condemnation and eternal conscious punishment and the believer to eternal blessedness and joy with the Lord in the new heaven and new earth to the praise of his glorious grace. That's a hard word. Eternal, conscious, torment. To grasp the reality of the teaching of Jesus is to be affected, sobered, overwhelmed, Uh, To feel depths of sorrow, one may cry freely. Uh, It is so hard that some seek to avoid it. And uh, I I don't doubt it'll be a bit uncomfortable to even think about this topic this morning. So I'm going to reference three samples uh, from varying theologians And I want to help you see the dilemma they're confronting. Normally in preaching, I know your preachers, pastors do this, you want to emphasize truth. You you don't spend a lot of time looking at what is false because you don't want to major on false, you want to major on true. But I'm going to take three views here to help inform you of the teaching that is out there. The first theologian is Clark Pinnock, Uh, Clark Pinnock, was uh, formerly a Reformed theologian who changed his mind, went to the Arminian position, and then just kept right on going and ended up in the openness of God camp. And if you don't know what I'm referring to, no worries. But uh, he moved in a more liberal direction. Here's what he says in a book, again written back late 80s. Let me say at the outset that I consider the concept of hell as endless torment in body and mind, an outrageous doctrine, a theological and moral enormity, a bad doctrine of the tradition that needs changed. How can Christians possibly project a deity of such cruelty and vindictiveness, whose ways would include inflicting everlasting torture upon his creatures, however sinful they may have been. Surely a God who would do such a thing is more nearly like Satan than like God, at least by any ordinary moral standards and by the gospel itself. Does the one who told us to love our enemies and tend to wreak vengeance on his own enemies for all eternity. As Hans Kong appropriately asked a Roman Catholic theologian, what would we think of a human being who satisfied his thirst for revenge so implacably and insatiably? Everlasting torment is intolerable from a moral point of view because it makes God into a bloodthirsty monster who maintains an everlasting Auschwitz for victims whom he does not even allow to die. And even in reading it, I feel like it's wise to step aside just in case because it seems so, so out there. I just want you to understand it's where academia is going and where academia goes, the church generally follows. So don't be surprised when you hear things like this. Notice, notice the question is about God and his character. When I was younger, I did not read books about theology, the study of God. I read books about marriage and parenting. I wanted practical help to live my life. I didn't didn't want to pay attention to those bigger questions that everybody's argued about for centuries. They don't agree anyway, so it can't matter. But it does matter. It matters hugely because the most important thing about you is who you believe God is. See, if you have a wrong view of God, you won't draw near to him. You'll, you'll, You'll back off. You'll be cold toward him. If you have a wrong view of God, you won't believe that which is true about him. And in a sense, we're on a balancing beam. As we look at this, we can fall off either side. The danger is basically what folks end up doing is saying, as I read about the God in the Bible, you know what? I don't like that guy. It's just it's rough around the edges, a little touchy at points. So I'm going to design my own God one I can live with and one I can like. And I want to suggest we need the whole counsel of God, not just our personal preference. Here's John Stott sharing his heart in all honesty and anguish. And John Stott is a reliable guide in so many ways. Uh, I'm reluctant to even pick on him. But uh, he wrote this in a book called Essentials. This, This will resonate with us. I find the concept, meaning of eternal conscious torment in hell, intolerable. And do not understand how people can live with it without either cauterizing their feelings or cracking under the strain. But, he says... Our emotions are a fluctuating, unreliable guide to truth and must not be exalted to the place of supreme authority in determining it. As a committed evangelical, my question must be and is, not what does my heart tell me, but what does God's word say? He recognizes, and this is what I want you to see, start recognizing the anguish of the position. It is, as he says, intolerable. How do we not crack under that strain? And then third, Sharon L. Baker, now by Marriage Putz, is a professor of theology and religion at Messiah University. It was Messiah College when she wrote this book in 2010 called Raising Hell, with a Z, -Z R-A-Z-I-N-G, Raising Hell, Eliminating Hell is the idea, rethinking everything you've been taught about God's wrath and judgment. Here's the blurb, and I just simply want you to understand that theologians who will not hold to the inerrancy of God's word will eventually head leftward, by which we mean liberal. I'm not talking political. I'm talking, talking doctrine, and they will eventually deny the doctrine of hell. It is quite common to do so. The blurb about the book says... The idea of hell can haunt dreams and disturb sleep. Many wonder at the justice or injustice of it all, feeling confounded by a God who deems it necessary to send the majority of humanity to burn there forever. 70% of Americans believe in hell, as do ninety percent, 92% of those who attend church every week. Clearly, it's a hot topic, no pun intended. Baker offers readers a safe space to contemplate tough issues as they rethink traditional views of hell. In our candid and inviting style, Baker explores and ultimately refutes many traditional views of hell, presenting instead theologically sound ways of thinking that are more consistent with the image of God as a loving creator who desires to liberate us from sin and evil. This is an excellent selection for general readers, students, pastors, professors, and grief counselors, and will provide clarity for those with questions about hell, God's judgment, and what happens to us when we die? Note well, the issue is God. They say God is a God of love, by which they mean only. And they stop there. We don't stop there. We say, yes, God is a God of love, but God is also holy, holy, holy. And we live aware of his holiness, righteous, and justice. He is just. This actually requires hell. Here I want to note that Jesus references hell often. He references hell more than heaven. And he, on some 20 instances, refers to hell as a fire. And to this, we want to say simply that there is entirely room, in my view, to question genre and to try to understand the literal meaning of hell. The the point being made is there is a degree of torment and punishment. We're clear on that. Whether it's literal flames or not, I, I do not know, and I don't even have a position. The point is, it's not desirable. That we're clear on. Whether Jesus is using a word picture or it's an actual fact, I do not pretend to know, but we get the point of the message. Here are two examples of Jesus speaking about hell. Matthew five, twenty-seven and thirty. You've heard it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that anyone who looks on a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it's better to lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Jesus had no reticence, no reluctance to talk about hell. And in Matthew 7, also the Sermon on the Mount, verse 21 and following, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Then Jesus says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So Jesus teaches about hell often. It's a regular topic for him. So what do these teachers who don't teach hell, where do they go? Uh, what do they do? What, and this is what you're going to hear at points as you are in various situations. There's generally two answers, and these are not new. These have been around for centuries, unless uh, someone presents it as new thinking. Uh, the first is called annihilation. Uh, here in this view, in both of these views, by the way, there is a heaven, but, but there's not a hell. Uh, so annihilation, a soul ceases to exist uh, and there are, there are many options under that one option. Uh, but they point to the idea that destruction in the Bible can mean destroyed, uh, the disproportion of temporal sin versus eternity. You mean, they would say, you mean I sin for 80 years and for eternity unpunished. How does the sentence fit the crime? I don't, I don't get it. To which Jonathan Edwards would have said, the issue is the one being sinned against. That's, that's the issue. They don't get how there can be the presence of evil creatures, which would mark creation, thus we should eliminate them. And they say that God is love. So Jesus is the image of the Father. Therefore, the Old Testament must go, which is a huge theological error. So annihilations one. Universalism is the other. Universalism says all are saved all go to heaven now if I'm going to choose my heresies I do like that one better than the annihilation option uh, but we can't support either we deny both options second question who will spend eternity in hell this is where it gets interesting hell's a real place inhabited by Satan and fallen angels and human beings who went their own way and chose to reject God in truth they hate God and refused to worship him. They wanted to be master of their souls. There won't be anyone in hell who somehow wanted to be saved and was not. That category will not exist in any way whatsoever. So, the, Jesus describes it this way. What he says is, folks love darkness. So as we interact with folks evangelistically, you'll get questions like what about the evil in the world and what about suffering? And there are, there are legitimate answers we have for those kinds of questions. But I want to underscore, it's often a smoke screen for the fact that folks love darkness. Those of you who may have children not yet regenerated, possibly even adult children, the problem isn't your teaching to them, you taught them truth, the problem is they love darkness and they need a new heart. So Jesus in John three 19, nineteen and 20 says, this is the judgment. Light has come into the world. That's Jesus. And people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who has wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. It is a comfort to us. I'm speaking now to what John Stott wrote. It's a comfort to us that no one is without excuse. No one is without excuse. We know this truth from Romans, Romans 1.20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Everyone is without excuse is what I would say to John Stott is why I can live with the reality of hell. There is no such thing as someone who is not aware of the ultimate truth regarding God. This does deal with the questions of those who never heard the gospel. We must labor to share the good news with those who haven't heard. So later in Romans, Apostle Paul, Romans 10, how then will they call on him and who they have not believed? how will they believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Furthermore, it is acceptable to warn people of the wrath to come. It's a loving kindness to let them know what is up ahead. If you're anything like me, You can feel this reluctance to share this bad news before the good news. You're concerned perhaps you'll get scorned, uh, perhaps you'll get mocked, but it is acceptable, it is love to warn them what is up ahead. So Jonathan Edwards in his works said some talk of it as an unreasonable thing to fright persons to heaven, but I think it's a reasonable thing to endeavor to fright persons away from hell. They stand upon its brink and are just ready to fall into it and are senseless of their danger. Is it not a reasonable thing to fright a person out of a house on fire? It is a very reasonable thing. And so while folks may not appreciate it in our evangelistic efforts, there is no problem with going there. That said, we major on the good news We share the bad news, but we major on the good news. We make much of Jesus. We speak of the love of God for sinners. We speak of his death on a cross and resurrection, and we invite folks to flee from the wrath to come by believing Jesus. Hell is a real reality. In Harrisburg, if you go up to Harrisburg in 283, you'll see a billboard that has three words on it, heaven or hell question mark I saw it and I thought God bless them they're they're trying they're trying to make a difference I mean they're trying to be helpful and they might say their efforts better than my no billboard so that might be fair but I don't much prefer the sign Jesus isn't named and almost everyone thinks they're going to heaven anyway Uh, so I don't find the question all that helpful let me briefly share my story with you it may resonate with some of you My story is when I'm 13 years old, I'm in an evangelistic meeting and I hear a sermon on Matthew 24 and 25, wailing and gnashing of teeth, and I knew I wasn't interested in wailing and gnashing of teeth. I'm interested in the other option. And I I think I sincerely believed it was Jesus. Uh, and, And as I went forward and responded, I felt this sense of my sins being forgiven, Sadly, that's all that was presented to me. Uh, So during my teen years, even into my early 20s, I'm I'm pretty much living my own life, doing my own thing, going my own way. I think my sins are forgiven because everybody wants a Savior to forgive their sins. But there was no way I could say Jesus was Lord of my life. I was Lord. I did what I wanted. I would have been considered a good kid, good person, you understand, not a troublemaker, but... I thought that was acceptable. And then I heard a sermon in my early 20s that said, Jesus is Lord. And I knew instantly, like, (laughs) I didn't have to, this this wasn't introspective. I knew instantly, he's not Lord of my life. I'm Lord. And at that point, convicted, I prayed a prayer and believed asking Jesus to be Lord of my life and acknowledging his lordship in my life. The interesting thing, so I don't know if I was saved at 13 or 23. The interesting thing was, whenever I would hear a gospel presentation in those years, I would think, I should go forward again. And then I'd think, I'm not going forward again. I did it once. Like, I, I'm not doing that. Um, when I'm 23, hear this sermon about Jesus as Lord I'm persuaded I'm born again following Jesus. Maybe what I experienced was assurance of salvation. I don't know. I know I'm saved now. Not sure how that process worked out. But the point I want to make is it's insufficient just to scare people toward Jesus. We, we do that. We include that. But that's not all there is. We major on the good news. There isn't any such thing as purgatory or a second chance God is holy and just. He simply can't forgive sin. Someone has to pay. And we're either in Jesus and believing that gift he offers or we are not in Jesus. Jesus offers us the gift of himself. He pays it all. So for eternal life, friend, look to Jesus. Find your sins forgiven and find joy eternal. The love of God is freely offered to all. But what of the innocent person in Africa who never heard the gospel? We say, according to the Bible, there isn't any such person because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is no innocent human being in the world, so they need to hear. At Living Hope, we support Paul Michaels and his work in Nepal. I'm sure you support many missionaries as well. People must hear the good news about Jesus. This is not optional work. This is mandatory, essential work. Now, there are theologians who hold out the hope that those who never heard might have opportunity to respond. So I want to share this just so you're prepared and armed. Our position that your statement of faith holds to uh, is called restrictivism. We hold that God doesn't provide salvation to those who fail to hear of Jesus and come to faith before they die. Examples include John Calvin, Jonathan Edwards, R.C. Sproul. Another position holds that there is universal opportunity before death. Uh, These people might be approached by God or angels in a dream uh, at the moment of death. Uh, Examples, James Arminius, Norman Geisler held to this view. Inclusivism, holds the unevangelized may be saved if they respond in faith to God on the revelation they have. Examples include John Wesley, Billy Graham, C.S. Lewis. And postmortem evangelism says the unevangelized receive an opportunity to believe in Jesus after death. George MacDonald is an example of that. Where the doctrine of eternal punishment rocks our world. And where the gospel becomes offensive is in this. Good people go to hell. And that offends our sense of sensibilities. So who's the baddest guy in the history of the world? Probably Adolf Hitler, right? I mean, Nazis, they're the fall guys for so much. Uh, And they've earned it. Um, So you mean my Nice, kind neighbor who's not a believer in Jesus is the same as Adolf Hitler. You mean that? To which I would say, well, it may not be exactly the same because there are degrees of these things, but in terms of ultimate realities, they are one and the same. I have in my life had neighbors who are nicer, kinder people than some folks in my church. And so, if, you're, if your view of evangelism is, I can only share Jesus with a life that's fallen apart, and if their life hasn't fallen apart, I got nothing to offer, God, you've got an erroneous view of the gospel. The gospel is offered freely to all, and we are only saved by faith through grace. There is not a single good work you and I will ever do or could ever do that is good enough to earn us salvation. That's utterly impossible. Those good folks who are not trusting in Jesus, when they're before the Lord, they will explain and describe their good works as their grounds for salvation. You, when you appear before the Lord on that final day, you will not begin your answer by saying, I and fill in the rest. I believed, I trusted, I repent. whatever. You won't begin with I. You'll begin with Jesus and you'll look to him and say, I'm in him and everything he has is mine. My older brother took care of it all and everything he has is mine. We don't bring a single thing. We offer nothing to him. There's nothing good in us to offer. We don't have that. We look at the band of human experience and say they're good people. But the band of human experience is all under Adam and we're all rebels and we all hate God. That's why we all went our own way and did our own thing. We're all liars. We're all thieves. We're all sinners. So there is no nice person. And so every person needs to hear about Jesus is the point, not just those that have their lives falling apart. Third question, how does the doctrine of eternal punishment affect us now? Surely increases our motivation for evangelism. Surely we desire to tell those we're around and care about about Jesus. This matters tremendously. Spurgeon, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies, and if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions, and let, them, let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. Jesus, by the way, spent time with sinners. He was not repulsed by them. He He was repulsed by religious people, was not repulsed by sinners. He came for those who are sick and those who are in need of a Savior. Jesus had a heart of compassion for the lost. And I find if there's one thing those of us in the church need, it is compassion for those who are not in Christ. Compassion motivates us, compels us to go toward folks. Often, our hearts are cold toward those who are outside of Christ, thinking, well, they're getting what they deserve, but, but uh, we all deserve is is the point. The doctrine of eternal punishment satisfies our desire for justice. God tells us he has it, so we can let it go. We never pursue revenge. Romans 12, which is different from justice, we do pursue justice. Romans 12, 19 and following Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We treat our enemies with love is what the Bible invites us to do. And so if you have a spouse that mistreats you, one of your kids mistreats you, a friend disappoints, your siblings mistreat you, Perhaps you've been abused in some way, whether physical, sexual, or emotional, which we in no way, uh, condone in no way support. But if you're in that place, take care lest a bitter heart grow up in you. Your job as you process through, this isn't day one, your job as you process things through is to come to this place Where you're not looking for revenge, you're not looking for vengeance. The thing that happened to you is not your identity. Your identity is in Christ. You're in him. Everything he has, you are. That's that's you if you're in Christ. It's not what happened to you that marks your life. You do need to be safe. I'm not not advocating a lack of justice again. Uh, Next, the doctrine of eternal punishment enables us to forgive others. We follow in the steps of Jesus. Uh, Jesus forgave others, First Peter 2, 21, and following. For to this you've been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you may follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges Justly in forgiving others, we're always entrusting ourselves to God. We're always trusting ourselves to God. Jesus forgave others who mistreated him. Stephen, when he's being stoned, did the same thing. Our job, our work is forgiveness. Not because we don't care about justice, but but we are entrusting it all to God. And finally, the doctrine of eternal punishment provides motivation for godly living. Sin is a stupid thing. It never satisfies. It brings no enduring pleasure. Pleasure for the moment just catches us with a hook is all, and we are captive. We are not free at that point. We want no part of the wickedness that in the end results in hell. We don't venture to go near. We're saved by grace for sure, but we're set apart for good works. So Revelation 21.8 But as for the cowardly, the faithless, detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, huge category these days, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So let us examine our lives, friends. Let us examine our lives to be sure we're in Christ, that we're trusting Christ for salvation. We aren't in any way. Trusting in anything we've done. Let's examine ourselves so that there is no deception. And I want to ask you if you've trusted in Christ. I want to ask you if you've considered your direction, if you've considered your sin and Jesus as a Savior, and if you would not desire that for your life, the light that is in Christ. He offers to set us free. You're warned that up ahead, the bridge is out. Destruction awaits. It's a sobering thing, but we must live aware of this. Jesus offers you life in him. It's glorious and never ends. Come to him and leave your sins behind. Jesus paid it all in our place, condemned he stood. So hell, the doctrine of eternal punishment, is not a chipper, happy topic. But it is the teaching of the Bible, and it accurately describes God whose kingdom is justice and righteousness. In sending people to hell, however it happens, God gives people what they want. They wanted to go their own way. They didn't want Jesus. And so Jesus just hands them over to what they want. In Revelations 14, 9 to 11, we read an interesting scripture where it appears the throne of God will look on to this eternal torment. Uh, Verse 10, he'll also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. He'll be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night. We tend to think of wrath and punishment as a human anger. God's anger is not like our anger his wrath is fixed. It's like darkness can't be with light. It's like that with God. Oil can't be with water. They do not mix. So may heaven and hell inform our thinking, our lives, our hearts, our actions. As much as it is up to us, we desire that no one spends eternity in hell except for Satan and his crew. Therefore, friends, let us work While it is day, let us ponder, think on these things. Let us pray that we would live rightly, uh, paying attention to that which is momentous, not momentary. And may we proclaim Jesus to those we are around. I'd like to pray at this point. Let's just join our hearts together. Heavenly Father, We're overwhelmed at the thought of eternal conscious torment. It is sobering. It is sad. It is alarming. But how great is our sin? Lord, I pray that you'd help us to understand the justice of hell by our meager grasp of sin pray that the horrors of hell would not linger in our thinking, yet we'd be aware of this eternal torment. May we fear it rightly, and may we rescue as many as we can. May we cherish the Christ who bore our guilt, and may we stand in awe of your justice and grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.